The idea of this podcast is simple, discipleship. We want to bring the gospel message about how to interact with your coworkers, your culture, your friends, everyone around you in a biblical way, which is, in essence, discipleship. What did Jesus do when he came to this earth? He took the devil's stuff. The Bible actually teaches that the world is becoming increasingly covered with the knowledge of the glory of God. That should change everything in the mind of a Christian. Instead of thinking about all the ways society is failing, we should think about all the ways society must be, as Psalm 1101 tells us, put underneath the feet of Jesus in victory. The Rebel Podcast. We would be honored if you would join us. Welcome back to the Rebel Podcast. P Nate, Elder P, Air Jordan in the building today. Air Jordan, I like, I like it. That. Nice, that. well done. It's the only opportunity I ever have to use Air Jordan. We got our, we got our friend, friend of the show. Can we call you? Because sure. you're on it now. Sure. Jordan Cecile up in this build business. <laughs> up in this business. <laughs> I have no idea. I have no idea. You're it just works. excited. It's, that's fun though. Air Jordan, I, I like it. I dig it. We dig we're leaving it, it in. Yep. Not that we were going to talk about basketball at all, because I actually dislike basketball. Like, like it actually makes me angry. Oh, that's, um, that's unfortunate but, for a soccer fan. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I have no leg to stand on here. But Michael Jordan is the greatest athlete that's ever existed. No, in, no. The greatest basketball player yeah, for I sure. Agree. Is that what you meant well, to say? No, no, no. Like, who's better? Who's a better athlete than Michael Jordan? I, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm actually getting all, upset now. Uh, dominant, I, I would say Tiger Woods is the most dominant athlete. Golf ever. isn't a sport. Yeah, I was going to go Tiger Golf Woods. Golf I was, right? uh, was going to go with Tiger Woods. I think Tiger Woods, I think you can make that case. I'm a huge hockey fan, right? So I'm going to say Wayne Gretzky as well. Wayne although, Gretzky isn't even the best hockey player that's ever existed. I, well, I mean, in all honesty, Connor McDavid's making a great case. Like he is unbelievable. He's unbelievable. All of our uh, American friends are like, who are these people? Yeah, what is hockey? <laughs> you are partial as a no other fan, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. So we are uh, the Rebels. We are part of the Fight, Laugh, Feast network. So we would just encourage you, if you are listening on like a, a podcast app of any kind, we would encourage you to go and download the Fight, Laugh, Feast app, uncancelable. Uh, there's a Canadian side and American side, lots of great content on both sides, but that's where you can probably find the show. We would encourage you to go and actually become a, a, a club member, support the network. Uh, if you do want to support the show in particular, you can go to patreon.com slash reform rebel. But um, that's who we are. That's who we're affiliated with. I want to introduce you to Air Jordan over here. I love the name. I feel like that's going to stick outside as well. But It should. Uh, so Jordan Cecile is actually pastoral intern at the church now, which means he has to do everything that we do, yep. <laughs> which also includes which also <laughs> includes this uh, this fun little hobby of ours, and that is getting in front of microphones and talking about stuff. Imitate us as we imitate Christ. Is that is that what <laughs> sure? We yeah, yeah. I man, Jesus totally would have a podcast if he was uh, up and going right now. What would his podcast be called? Ooh. The Lion and the Lamb. I, I just say that because that's our current sermon series. And I feel like I feel we like could have done better with that. I'm oh. sure plan that joke out. Yeah. Can I say Should one more thing about lot. sports yeah. before we it. get... Um, you just reminded me. My mom used to refer to Tiger Woods as Tigger Woods. Tigger? Tigger Woods. <laughs> and she was like, but she couldn't say Tiger. She's 60. Like, you can't say the guy's name. Like, it's like Tigger Woods. Can't learn, like, a, I really can't learn a new word. Yeah. It's Eldrick. Like, Did you know that? Sorry? Eldrick. Like Tiger, I think his first name is Eldrick. Eldrick yeah, yeah, that's right. That, that's his actual first name. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I literally honestly and imagine his how much more respect he would have had within this the golf community if he had went by Eldrick Woods. 
I might be coming around to the Tiger Woods just because. I, do you remember like the like when he played the like there was like all of a sudden people who didn't even know golf was a thing were That's like right. into golf. I well, still think Jordan. And they, was better, they started but. actually designing golf courses with him in mind, right? He, like when I think of like best athletes in the world, you think about people who changed the game, right? And yeah. Tiger Woods really did change the game because they started designing golf courses in a different way because of how he could drive the ball. It ties into what we're going to talk about today, and we I swear we didn't plan this, but like he he actually calls the paradigm shift in the way Ooh, people uh, viewed like golf, there. right? Look like that. remember, like what was your mental picture of golf before Tiger Woods was? Payne Stewart. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, but like the kind of the, the frumpyish white man in his mid forties, not a really an athletic guy, yeah. didn't hit the ball very far, just kind of played conservative. And Tiger Woods came out and was like, I'm hitting the ball 400 yards in the yeah. air. It's almost like happy Gilmore, but like for real, but right? Exactly, like he came real. out and like, he was the down to earth guy. He was cool. People wanted to be like him. He had yeah. the Nike endorsements and he had emotions when he played pump yeah. in the fist, always wore the shirt, red shirt on Sunday. He, he made it a different thing than it was. And now yeah. like we look at like, I don't, I'm not a big, a big into golf, but there's like Dustin Johnson. A lot of those guys now that have kind of like come up in the shadow of Tiger Woods and they play the game like he played it. Yeah. Right. And that that's why I think, I would make the argument for Tiger being the most dominant athlete ever because at the time when he was playing or ever, I don't think there was a person even playing the best golf of their life could have even touched him. Right. When he Whereas, was, yeah, when he was on, it yeah, was, who's, like, who's coming in yeah, second? Yeah, like Jordan still had Bird, he still had Johnson, yep. and those guys could give him a game and they did beat him. Yep. But like when Tiger was playing, nobody. I feel like Michael him. Jordan is somehow going to hear our podcast and then there's going to be a meme. It's like, Rebels, I took that personally. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would actually recommend to people, if you still have Netflix or you have access to things that are on Netflix, the documentary is there. There's a documentary, wow, what's it called, the Jordan one? The Last Dance. The Last Dance, yeah. So it's actually phenomenal. I would encourage anybody to watch it. But the thing I like about Michael Jordan, he's got a bit of an edge, and we're going to talk about this, maybe not this episode, but more next episode in terms of just, look, I'm not endorsing Michael Jordan as a person with everything that he did, but there was an edge to him where like, and I'm going to butcher these names, so I, I apologize, this is not this unprepared radio, right? Uh, but there's that young guy who was talking about how he, he could beat Jordan one-on-one and Jordan showed up at the practice as a like 48-year-old guy and just schooled the kid. Like yeah. the kid's in the prime of his... Do you remember the name? Yeah, of that? I can't remember the guy's name, but I, I saw the story. I've actually yeah. watched the video of their... Because somebody recorded the them. Yeah, play, like it. literally a player on the side recording yeah. it with their phone. And like Michael Jordan like was literally just having fun with the kid, just dominating him. And that was him like... 10 years after retirement or something, he came out, showed up at the guy's practice, like pro athletes practice and just smoked them one-on-one. And that's that like edge that I really appreciated. There's actually another good documentary on there called uh, The Redeem Team. And it's about the the US Olympic team re- reclaiming gold after they had lost a couple years in a row. Another phenomenal documentary. There's something really interesting about Michael Jordan in that documentary. I, the, the language is a bit rough because obviously yeah. it's not redeemed, but like there's something interesting just psychologically that Christians could pick up on in that documentary. And it's the idea of Mike, Michael Jordan, what made him successful is like he retrained his mind every single day. So like there, it repeats all the way through that. He's like, Jordan, make that like the meme. I took that personally. Yeah. He would create scenarios in yeah. his mind of rivalry and like... Yeah to try to prove himself every, every game where he would go out and like, he would make an enemy to beat the enemy. And it's yeah. like that idea of like, he, he just kept himself at such a fine edge. And I remember watching it with Heather. Uh, it was during COVID that this came out and uh, we watched it. And I remember thinking like, we had a long conversation about like, this is what Christians need to do in terms of like, just not creating rivals, but like 
talk to yourself, retrain your mind as you're kind of going through it because he overcomes all the obstacles in his life because of just the way he's, he's trained his mind and that's what made him elite. And so like, if you play that out of like, Paul tells us very much like be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We're all reading a book on depression, right? Like, and so it talks about like, talk to yourself. Don't listen to yourself. Talk to yourself. And it's this idea of like, if Christians just started applying Michael Jordan's like mentality to like their lives, like things like pornography, things like name any sin would probably be way well, more. Well, that was overcome. it, right? Like he had so mastered the game that there was nothing else really for him to accomplish on the court. So like you're saying, he would sort of make up scenarios of things he had to accomplish in a particular game, like almost like little tasks. And he'd, he'd come up with little rivalries and, and tell himself in his mind that this is what the other coach said. This is what that other player said. And he would make that game because he's, he's already dominated the court. What else does he have yeah. to prove? But he would make that game about silencing that critic. But that critic wasn't actually a critic. It was just a scenario he created in his mind to give him that fighting edge. And I think that that's one of those things, like you said, is Christians spend so much time like minimizing their own sin or whatever that we actually do the opposite, where we actually make it less of a battleground because we talk away, oh, it's not, that's not too bad if I indulge in this a little bit or if I do that. or This is just the way I am. Yeah, you know I mean, like, right. We can move on right after I said this. There's a funny quote that Michael Jordan's attributed to where they're talking about the Lakers team in the like 2000s with Shaq and Kobe and who would win between that great Lakers team and, and, and the, the, Bulls the 90s Bulls. Won, yeah. And he was like, we would win. We'd win, we'd win by about seven. The later reporter is like, oh, that close? He's like, well, yeah, most of us are 60s now. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, that's hilarious. That is funny. Kind of funny. Yeah. So Chris kind of alluded to this. What we wanted to talk about in this episode and kind of bringing Jordan out for his first time is paradigm shifts in the Christian faith. So a paradigm shift is something that sort of radically alters your mindset or radically alters the way that you look at something. There are several things like this. I can think through several paradigm shifts in my own faith or even in the life of of my family or certain books that became totally revolutionary in terms of how I was thinking, which then translates into how you're living. But Jordan's gone through a a few major paradigm shifts recently. And so we we thought we'd bring him on and kind of talk about some of these things. And they're, they're topics that we talk about often, obviously, but having a fresh perspective on it. But just to kind of tee up this content or tee up this idea, most of our listeners probably at this point are Calvinistic, right? I would I would assume, uh, right? Most of our, is that probably fair to say, Chris? If they're still listening to <laughs> yeah, us, yes. Right. So I would say like most of the people listening to us are, are reformed in their soteriology. And I think most of us can understand or identify with the time in which we became reformed in our soteriology, became Calvinistic, or even if you don't necessarily like that term, embrace the idea that God sovereignly elects some to salvation, right? That before the foundation of the world, he adopted us, he he, uh, predestined us for adoption rather, and elected us before the foundations of the world. Those verses coming to understand that we didn't choose God, God chose us. And so then whatever that looks like, Oftentimes, the reason cage stage becomes a thing, right? We all, we're, many of us are probably familiar with the term cage stage Calvinist, right? That guy who just got reformed, just became a Calvinist, and now he wants to argue with all his Armenian friends and his family, and he's, you know, kind of brash and, and all that kind of stuff. I think all of us have admitted in various times that we all went through a cage stage of Calvinism, yeah? Yeah, I'm still in it. <laughs> so, but the reason that cage stage happens is because when you get reformed in your soteriology, especially coming from a sort of Arminian or semi-Pelagian Christian tradition, you see something that changes your outlook on everything, 
right? When you understand that you didn't choose God, God chose you and elected you before the foundation of the world, and you are totally depraved, and without his intervening and irresistible grace, you would still be dead in your trespasses. When you grasp that, mercy and grace take on a whole new meaning because it's not something you chose. It's not something you sought after, right? There's no one good, no, not one. No one seeks for God. No one understands. That was you, dead in trespasses and sin, but God, you know, being rich in mercy, made us alive together in Christ, all that stuff. So when you understand that, your view of God gets bigger, right? He's the sovereign one who's in control of all things. Oftentimes with this comes the accompaniment of God's sort of meticulous sovereignty, right? Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from him knowing. Isaiah 46, he, I create light, I create darkness, I create calamity, I create well-being. I'm the God who does all these things. All of that sort of stuff, like God is meticulously sovereign. He's written every day of our lives before any one of them came to pass. All that stuff, it, it changes how you see everything. Yeah. Right? It changes how you look at hardship and circumstances, how you see salvation, how you see then evangelism, because evangelism doesn't become about you arguing people into the kingdom or your eloquence doesn't have a bearing on somebody's eternal salvation. So I'm saying all this just to say it's not just about becoming a Calvinist versus an Arminian, right? There's this massive paradigm shift. And then once you see it, you see it everywhere in scripture, right? Like you're just reading through and you're like, oh, it's there too. Oh, it's there too. Oh, this even back when, you know, how God is coming into covenant with Abraham, look at, a, you know, look at Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. God's the only one who passes through the, the carcasses, all this stuff, right? So it changes how you see everything. So what we want to do is we want to take a couple episodes and we have, we have three particular paradigm shifts in mind that we want to talk about and we'll see how many we get through before something else comes up. But let's start with this one because this is the one that's sort of new to Jordan and he's still in the cage stage. Of it. No, I don't know. Um, new to us because we have no idea what you're about to say. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> this is my also just a spoiler. This is my favorite kind of episode when I have an idea in my head and I put you guys on the spot. Like I put somebody else on the spot. Okay. But basically it's the post-millennial mind shift, right? The post-millennial paradigm shift. When you start to see the world as winnable, when you start to see the great commission as something that Jesus gave to be fulfilled. So this is all fairly new to you, Jordan. So why don't you just start with what made the pin drop for you? Like what was it that sort of changed your perspective on this? It was obviously a journey, but what was the sort of boom moment? Yeah. So for me, it, it really started with coming to crossroads and the interesting thing about that was, uh, you know, during COVID, this was the church that was open. And yep. so, you know, from our previous church, we knew a, a number of people who had made the switch over. And because of that, because of different reasons, we, my wife and I, we decided that, you know, we were going to go to this, this other church, which was Crossroads. And then as we, we started coming, we started feeling at home. We started listening to your preaching and the theology of the elders and stuff. We're like, okay, we can align with this, but there's this thing about, you know, the pastor's post mill. <laughs> right. And it was always, it, I like it. So it's whispered too, right? right? And, and it was, and it was just cause it's, you know, when you, when you talk to or listen to any podcast now of, you know, theologians, they always say like, well, there's pre-mill, there's all mill and nobody really talks about post mill anymore. So let's just not really engage it. So then out of respect for my new pastor, I was like, okay, I, I should probably understand what this crazy guy is actually teaching. So then I started looking into it and then I was like, okay, well I can understand the thinking I'm still not really there. It seems a little bit too optimistic in light of everything. And then it was, I met with you and yep. then you gave me Marcellus Kick's Eschatology of Victory. Yep. And then in reading that, that was what really just, his argument was so simple and so well articulated. And then as I was going through that study process of trying to understand 
like what really was a massive paradigm shift in my understanding. Like it yeah. literally changed. You would have come from like a historic pre-mill position. Uh, right? So previously, like when I first became a believer, I was discipled in dispensational premillennialism. Good friend of mine, who's still a good friend of mine, he discipled me in that. But then as I started coming, as I was reading scripture and coming into issues with some of those assumptions and conclusions, that then led me in. I was actually reading Kingdom Come by Sam Storms. Yep. Which then that changed my perspective to be more of the all mill. Okay. Uh, but then it was in coming to crossroads, listening to, you know, you guys. And then it was like, okay, I think I'm wrong about this. And then I started, I just went through the exercise of, I'm going to put a list of all of the different verses that I can find that are talking about this post mill stuff. And, you know, I just actually met with a guy today for breakfast, a man from our church. And I just read through so many verses and I was like, and I, and I stopped about halfway through my list. I was like, do you want me to keep going? <laughs> and it was just overwhelming. You know, you go through Isaiah, you go through the Psalms, and then, then you start seeing it in the New Testament with, you know, the parable of the, um, when Jesus is talking about when he returns, it's going to be a wheat field and not a weed field. It's, That's a, right. it's a wheat field with some weeds, not a weed field with some wheat. So then you start seeing these things and the parables of the mustard seed, parables of the leaven, all these different things. And it's just literally, it was like all these connections were just starting coming into place. Yeah. And it really started because I just wanted to understand what you guys were saying. And then all of a sudden it was like, I, I actually think you guys are right. And then I think that's what I would say now, unambiguously, the entirety of scripture is saying that the world will be one to Christ. <laughs> and when you say your lights come on and things start right. happening, it is so obvious to me now. Yeah. Um, now I want to be gracious and patient with other people, but it's For like, sure. I, I genuinely now feel that cage stage motivation where it's like, no, everybody needs to understand this. Yeah. Like I want everybody to believe this. And I do think that there's, there's something about the cage stage, which that's like, I don't think it all comes from an improper motivation. It's not like everybody who becomes a Calvinist suddenly gets like antagonistic and, and hard headed and, and argumentative. But I think it comes from this genuine desire that like the lights have come on for me, as you described it, I want to help turn the lights on in other people's minds. Right. And I do remember uh, the guy who mentored me once telling me, you can't expect that one breakfast meeting or one sermon is going to get somebody to where you have become or where you've gotten to after months of, uh, and, of, and books and books of reading, right? So you talked about Marcellus Kick's Eschatology of Victory. It's a whole book, and he, he does, uh, it's basically split into three parts. The first is sort of, this is the case for postmillennialism. The second part is, is, okay, so what about Matthew 24? And then the last one is, okay, well, what about Revelation 20? Anyway, it's a great book. I would recommend it to anybody. But like, you did a lot of studying, a lot of reading and all that kind of stuff. So it's like one breakfast might not, you might have boiled it all down to these succinct verses that you've now connected, but we can't expect somebody else, the lights to come on just like that. But it comes from a good motivation, right? It comes from the desire that like, like brother, like I, I, I love you and I want you to see what I see because it's glorious and it's good and it's beautiful. Um, so I think that, uh, I, I think then that, that it becomes, you know, incumbent upon us to surround ourselves by people who are like, Hey, in your cage staginess, don't be quarrelsome. Don't, you know, don't be argumentative, but yeah, like, absolutely. Let's, let's now, you know, preach the whole counsel of God and, and open people's minds to what we've seen and be open for correction if, if somebody points something else out. But yeah, it definitely is like a, a light bulb coming on. You've obviously been postmo for a long time, Chris. Do you remember what it was that kind of did it for you? Really quickly, so I, I kind of had a similar like upbringing. Like the first book anybody ever gave me was Left Behind. I think I've said that many yeah. times. And before I did, the Bible, before the, <laughs> yeah, literally before I, the Bible. I stole my first Bible, <laughs> and then somebody gave me Left Behind. Weird order there. The path started really quickly with somebody saying, "Like you go home and show me the rapture in, in Scripture." 
And I remember going home and going into the cocoon phase of like, which is the opposite of cage phase, <laughs> where I was just like, I can't find what I think I believe. So I became similar to Jordan. I became all millennial um, through discussion with him. But it was just simply uh, Marcellus Kickbook. And then talking uh, at Mike Wilkins preached mm-hmm. through Revelation at, at West London Alliance. And I remember sitting there, I remember very distinctly sitting beside Heather and being like, he's wrong about that. He's wrong about that. <laughs> and then it was just like, but like, you know, you do the Berean thing, you go home and you try to disprove him. Right. And then I realized that I was wrong. And so like not knowing where I was going on that, but I remember the conviction of like, I've got to figure this out now. Your point about like, don't expect somebody to get there right away is really good because it it was a probably about a good solid year of like, this was the only thing I was reading about, talking about, or like to get myself to the point. I remember even having a conversation with you, you probably don't even remember this. I was on a trip with a guy and he, and I was like, I remember going to you and be like, he was saying crazy things. He was saying that Revelation's all about 70 AD and you'd be <laughs> like, it is. And I remember being like, well, now I got to go research this. Like, and just like little, like little, like, so it's like, it's a, it was a slow process. It wasn't like, you know, I just opened a book and was like, oh, yeah. you've convinced me. It was like, almost breaking down all the barriers to like this being the truth. But then once the final domino fell, all of a sudden all of these other yeah, passages, like that's it. like Isaiah 9, like all these other ones that I've, I've you know, yeah. all of a sudden take on a whole new meaning. And it's funny, we, through men's prayer at our church every Thursday, we just go through the book of Psalms over and over yeah. and over and when again. you get to 150, you just go back to one. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Before I was post-millennial, the book of Psalms was like kind of like, Okay, it's it's fine, but now it's like it's like the light shines when it opens because it's like the most postmo book of all time. Yeah, like every because verse... they're, they're the victory songs of the church, right? Absolutely. Like it's yeah. And then the, the other thing people don't get with paradigm shifts in terms of like postmillennial. So like a lot of people listen probably are already, already postmillennial. So we're talking about something that they've experienced. But there even in that there's paradigm shifts in even just how full our depth of that is. The big one for me was when I all of a sudden read Isaiah sixty five. And was like, wait, we're in the new heavens and the new earth. And so it's like just that little domino. When that fell, I was just like, everything in my world has changed now. We're going to win it. And here's the evidence in scripture that says it's going to, it's going to trend back up the way I'm looking at it. Like, I think I even preached, I had this whole tangent at our church about Isaiah 65, how it can't be a thing. And, and I was like, cause I was just so excited about the fact that I've, I've seen this now. Yeah. Your point, again, is, is well taken of like, it's not that I want to bash people over the head and convince them. It's that people who are gifted in a way to preach, teach, once we see something, we internalize it. And then it's a burden we've talked about. We've often yeah. talked about like, you have to exp- like yeah. get it out. And so like, it's not that we want to bash people over the head. It's that we want to share with you what God has laid on us. Yeah. And so you might not see it, but we're, we definitely want to tell you. You know yeah. what I mean? And it's not because we, we want to argue you into this belief. It's that... One, it's a check on balance on us. Like if, if I'm wrong about this, you're Push going to back. walk me yeah. back. Or two, like follow me as I follow Christ. Like here, like let's go together and see what the scriptures say. Like to talk about paradigm shifts, like we just passed Reformation Day, right? And probably the biggest paradigm shift since the crucifixion is the Reformation. You know right. what I mean? Like and that the reclaiming of in faith alone through Christ alone. Um, and it's like the the paradigm shift that Luther would have had to go on to is is massive. And but I was just like, what did he he didn't just hold that to himself. He started to tell everybody, right? right? And one of the slogans of the Reformation was Semper Reformemde, like always be re- being willing to be reformed. And that's 
kind of what cage phase is. Like we're, we want to help everybody else get to where we are. Yeah. Sometimes the problem is that we just do that very poorly. Yeah. We don't like, temper it with, uh, with, you know, the, the gentleness and, and meekness and kindness of, exactly. you know, what I, I don't think I've ever asked you, how did, how did you become post-millennial? It was through Mike Wilkins, really like part of the pastoral apprenticeship. Marcellus Kick's book was part of the apprenticeship reading. I remember I was kind of ripe for it because I was really into this idea. I, I remember I had done a big study on the idea that we all go to heaven, right? And and I remember reading and being like, that's not quite the story. Like we grow up in this idea, like, you know, we live here on earth and then we go up to heaven when we die and we spend eternity there. And I had just come off a study where it was sort of like, wait, wait a sec, the earth is our final home, right? Heaven is the transitionary place. That's where the and we can get into that whole thing another time, but that's where the transitionary, the intermediary state before the consummation of the heavens and the earth. But we come back, and so there's this idea that heaven comes and, and collides with earth, and that's what the final state looks like. And so I just come off that, and so I was kind of ripe for post-millennialism. But it was Marcellus Kick's book for me too, and I remember sitting down, <laughs> sitting down with Mike, and I was supposed to read the first section of Kick's book that week, right? And so I came back, and like I said, it's divided into three books. And I think it's like maybe a 300-page book. It's not huge, but um, but I came back after the week where I was supposed to read the first section. I was just like, I read it all. And he's like, oh, okay, like, uh, did, did you enjoy it? What, do you, what did you disagree with? And I'm just like, I can't disagree with it. And I'm like, but I have questions. And he was just like, okay, what are your questions? And I'm just like, so, and I just like all of it. I'm just like, so like great commission and he's like yep given so that it could be fulfilled i'm like okay okay and i'm just like I, and i go through it's like king uh, you know psalm 2 he's like yep all the kings of the earth will bow down i'm like okay okay like and i had all these questions because i had all these verses coming through my mind and i remember he then brought me to first corinthians 15 and i was just excited because i'm just like so that means like we'll beat abortion right and he's just like we will and, and so he goes to 1 Corinthians 15 and there's that idea that, you know, he must reign until all of his enemies are placed underneath his feet in victory and the last enemy to be defeated is death. And, and that verse hadn't even come to me. And I was just like, oh, and I think he even it's in Marcellus Kick's book, but that wasn't one of the ones that got me. And I'm just like, okay. And he's like, so what's the story now? And I'm like, we're putting things underneath Christ's feet. He's like, that's right. And it was just this total change of mind because it's like suddenly you saw the world as winnable. And I think that was the biggest paradigm shift for me. So then, you know, and we've talked about this before, how like a lot of times in, in at church, you have people like the gentleman that uh, Jordan met for breakfast this morning, who wonderful guy, love him to death, loves the word of God, loves the Lord and loves the church and loves our preaching but wouldn't gravitate towards post-millennialism. I think if you asked him, he'd probably be like, I love everything about the church except this one thing, right? But we've said this before. It's like everything that the church is built on, I shouldn't say it that way because obviously the church is built on Christ and on his word, but like all of the influence that I have on the church is influence that's fueled by the reality that Christ wins the world. That changes everything. Jordan and I were talking about this not that long ago, so I want to kick it over to you. It's like one of the first things that changes is how you raise your kids because you're not thinking anymore about, you know, raising them to get a good education and get a good job. You're raising them to raise kids who raise kids who raise kids who win the world, right? You're, you're thinking now legacy. You're thinking 100 year, 150 years out. So that was actually one of the, I'd say for me to be in this new phase of post-mill, the thing that has been really motivating me to 
tell other people to try and encourage them. And, and to be quite honest, I want to proselytize them to be post-mill. Yeah. Because the thing that really struck me was in the West, because we're so dispensational pre-millennial and we have this idea that, you know, this, the church is going to lose, Jesus is just going to pop in one day and, you know, save us out of the fire. Yep. So because of that, there's a, there's that defeatist attitude. But then when you understand post-millennial eschatology and you realize that it's actually through the church that the kingdom comes yep. and that it's through the efforts of the church by, you know, the Holy Spirit enabling us and empowering us to go and do the things that he has told us to do. And that means things like raising our children, me as a dad, discipling my wife, discipling my kids, me going and sharing the gospel with my neighbors. And it's all through that where the kingdom will spread. Yeah. And it's through the discipling of the nations, but that's going to only come when we're actively participating in that, not just sitting hunkered down in our bunkers waiting for Jesus to save us from the fires of the world around us, whereas it's actually no the kingdom will come when the church goes and actually claims victory, but it's it's through the church that he's That's bringing right. about his kingdom. And even just that, like, uh, I know one of your favorite verses is Habakkuk 2.14, right? Yep. The whole world will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the water covers the sea. And it just, like, struck me as we were reading through that Spine of Scripture book where we, being believers, having the indwelt Holy Spirit in us, we are holy ground. That's and right. so every single time somebody is made a disciple of Jesus the literal physical presence of God is covering the earth and growing and expanding the kingdom physically, literally, right. because everywhere a believer is, God is, his presence is yeah. there. So then it's like, if we're wanting to cover the world as, and fulfill that promise that God made, well, yeah, we need to make disciples. That's and that right. means we have to actively be making disciples, sharing the gospel, discipling people. And so like that, that's why for me now, where I know enough people who are just expecting the world to go into chaos. Things are going to get worse. There's nothing we can do. We're going to lose in the end. We're never going to get rid of abortion. We're never going to have all these unjust laws removed. Well, yeah, you're not going to work. You're not actually going to try to actively do those things if you're bought into the idea that what's the point? I praise God, and I don't say this disparagingly. I'm operating from the understanding that my perspective is right, right? Obviously, I hold my convictions through deep thought and study. I thank God for inconsistent premillennialists, right? And I think we have a lot of them at the church and they're wonderful and they fight and they do believe that the gospel will advance and that will defeat certain societal evils. But I believe they hold those views despite their eschatology, not because of their eschatology. And I think there's a major difference when you are fighting from the understanding that we do win, right? So it's not so much about whether or not our generation will take ground. It's how much ground will our generation take, right? There's almost a challenge or one of the other paradigm shifts that we'll probably maybe talk about next week is is the idea of biblical masculinity. But there is something about this like, wait, we're victorious. So then how much ground we take has to do with how many idols we put underneath the feet of Jesus. You know, we're all just kind of rolling the stone a little bit further up the hill and the next generation takes it. But how much ground do we take? And there's almost something that challenges my masculine urges to like, okay, I got you here. Like, let's go for it. So I think that's huge. And, And in terms of like paradigm shift, you kind of touched on it, Jordan, is this also affects then your ecclesiology, right? Because it is through the church that this happens. And so one of the things that I think a lot of people kind of flock to our church through all of this is because I think we had a good understanding of the of church and state relations, but that comes, that's birthed out of this high view of church, which is birthed out of this idea that this is the vessel through which God wins the world, right? So to me anyway, this is one of the tests I have is if, if what I'm seeing makes me think more of God and makes me mm. like see him with more beauty, more, more majesty, Generally, I think that's probably a good thing to, th- to focus on, like 
a lot of people, their eschatology is kind of like just the end with, with post-millennial. It's different though, because like it actually becomes a biblical hermeneutic through the whole way we live our lives. Right. Mm. Like, so, and I know that in some ways all eschatologies do that, but you guys are talking about like it changed the way you wrote, raised your kids. It changes the way we view church. It changes the way we do, view our jobs. It changes the way yeah. we do all of these things because there's the underlying assumption that Christ will win right. these things. And that just makes God look better. Jordan, you were talking about this hunker down mentality. And I'm just like, one of the challenges I think non post millennial people have in scripture is trying to show a second rescue. Because mm. nothing in scripture ever says that Jesus needs to save us again. He's already saved us. He paid the price for the world and for us once and for all. And that's very evident in scripture. But the dispensational view is is another defeat of, of his kingdom. And it's like that that just doesn't seem consistent with right. with scripture. And so you made me think about this when you talked about like we actually like a lot of the guys who are inconsistent in this because of their inconsistency. Yeah. John Piper, we've yeah. often talked about how much we like John Piper in a lot of things, not everything, but and one of the things that we like about him is let the nations be glad is a very inconsistent yeah. book yeah. because he's very optimistic about the, the kingdom's advance. Our good friend, Corey, he's the most <laughs> optimistic guy in the world, Yeah, but his eschatology is different than ours. You know what right. I mean? So like it's the inconsistency that he applies that we, we actually kind of like, he'll hate that I called him inconsistent, but yeah, I'm not he sure will. he listens. Yeah. Get, um, get ready so. for uh, <laughs> get, get ready for a phone call. Um, well, that, that, like a thing I joke with, so I have like buddies of mine who most of whom are all mill. And as we talk about these things, and I bring up Isaiah 65, new heavens, new earth, they don't really have a response to that, talking yeah. about all the passages about all the kings will give you thanks, all the families will yeah. will, uh, will worship fall, you. Yeah. And all of them are kind of like, yeah, uh-huh. But then they're just, they still get kind of hung up on the, the conditions of the world at the end. But ultimately, they, they would all say that, yep, the gospel is victorious. And I've always just joked with them. I was like, you're post-mill? but you just need to work out a few passages. Yeah, like it's really, right. yeah. because it's like, you're, you're everything I'm saying, you're saying yes and amen. It's just those things like Matthew 24, how do you handle some of the Olivet Discourse? How do you handle, right. you know, some of those things that are pointing to the end? And honestly, like, you, you take a little bit of work sometimes, and yep. especially, yep. you know, the narrow way, you know, looking at it in totally. Matthew versus Luke, and how do you make sense of those two things? Yep, for sure. Um, but you talk to most brothers that I know anyways, who are in at least the all-mill camp, they're there. It's just, I think they need to take the time yeah. to like study it and to, to kind of. Yeah. Most, I, I know, I do know, speaking of our great friend, Corey McKenna, I know he hates this uh, quote, but Gary North once said that all millennialism is the carpool on the uh, edge of the post mill highway. <laughs> so it's, it's like, it's like where they, where they stop to get picked up along the way, you know? Yeah. I, I do like that phrase, but so I just thinking about sort of um, the ways in which this changes, how you see certain things. I do think that the, the idea of a high ecclesiology is a, is a big part of this. One of the things that I was thinking about was, so the new heavens and the new earth is a big one as well, is like, this idea that people are always saying, oh, we're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth, like massive paradigm shift when you start to say, oh, wait, like when, when does that new earth, when does that happen? When is the recreation of the new heavens and the new earth? And I think, I think, I mean, we haven't all worked out kind of the nuances of our post-millennial position, but I think we would all agree that that happened at the resurrection, right? So Jesus inaugurated a new creation, right? So the new Adam, uh, the last Adam coming out of a new womb-like tomb that had never been used, right, comes out on the first day of the week, a new creation week, and inaugurates a new creation. And when you think about that, like you think about a fundamentally changed world. It's crazy just to think about that. So, And the reason we say that is so the Isaiah 65 for any of our listeners who maybe haven't worked all of this stuff out is what is one of the things that happens in the new earth, right? People still die. 
right? And that's very clear in Isaiah 65. They still are experiencing yeah. death. Sin is still present. Sin, sin is still yeah. present. So how does that work with the eschatology that would say that the new heavens and the new earth aren't inaugurated until Christ's second advent? So that's what we're saying. So Christ comes out of the womb-like tomb in a garden, right? Inaugurating a new creation at the beginning of the week. Which is also, by the way, my apologetic for why we worship on the Lord's Day on Sunday as opposed to the Sabbath, right? If you look at some of the Old Testament laws about the Sabbath, nothing short of a new creation would sort of circumvent the the eternality of the Sabbath laws. And so Christ inaugurates a new creation. And this is where I think like, and we've talked about this a lot recently at church where, okay, so what fundamentally changed? And there, were, there are certain things. So like C.S. Lewis says it when Aslan comes back from the dead, where he says, you know, death begins to work backwards. And so you see the world suddenly as this fundamentally transformed thing. And what has transformed? Well, Satan's grip on the nations has been destroyed. His legal claim over the nations of the earth has been destroyed. And so the world is fundamentally changed because, and you can picture it this way, it's no longer in the grip, right, of the evil one. And so now, I don't know if you actually know this, Jordan, this is actually part of the where we got the name Rebel Podcast. It, all, it started with a, a sort of Star Wars nod and the idea that in the original trilogy, the Death Star gets destroyed, right? That's the knockout punch. But... What really would have happened, and get, don't get me wrong, the the pre or the are they prequels or the 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 new not the prequels, the new sequels, the ones with Ray, and they've kind of ruined our whole mentality here. But the thought was, Emperor gets destroyed, Vader's destroyed, Death Star gets destroyed, the Empire is is thrown, sort of the knockout punch. But now it's the task of the rebels is to go into the rest of the galaxy and liberate the galaxies and the solar systems that are still under imperial rule because there would have been a whole lot of imperial outposts. But the victory had been won, but the galaxy has been fundamentally changed with the destruction of the empire there. And so it changes how you view the world. It's this incredible light has come into the darkness, like like color has come to a world of black and white. It's this, this incredible picture that suddenly it's now a winnable world. And what was impossible for Israel to do is now possible for the church to do because Christ fundamentally created a new heavens and a new earth. It's amazing. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing. There's a couple things with the death working backwards. Isaiah 65 actually talks about that, right? Mm -hmm. Like one of the things is like, we'll mourn when a guy dies at 125. Men will grow to walk around as old as trees. We like, how old does a tree live, right? Like an ant. Hundreds of years, like an (laughs) ant. And so like when it talks about that idea of like Jesus died to reverse the, the curse of sin, past, present, and future for us, we also know the world was cursed by sin and that's being reversed as well. So um, it's that idea of like, yeah, we should expect to see all the enemies being put under, including like a lot of things that kill us now, like drug abuse, like yeah. cancer, things like that being defeated. Right. But ultimately Christ will come back when death. So that's a really interesting one. But, and then the other part was like, we talk about the rebels and in, in star Wars, I remember reading an essay. This is recent that I read this. It's weird. An essay about like, honestly, like, kind of like the theology of Star Wars. It wasn't a, it wasn't a Christian article though. Yep. It was talking about the most vulnerable the Rebel Alliance would have been was the moment after the Death Star exploded because they lost most of their forces too. Right. And so it's like the Empire, who which expands the entire globe, had its head cut off, but it's still the big beast of the yep. world. And the Rebel Alliance is now even more crippled but they now have their savior in that in that sense with Luke. And it's like, as they spread out, it's like that idea of like, well, Christ has crushed the head of the serpent. 
but mm. all parts of the body haven't been put into subjection, right? Which is the Hebrews too, right? Like it's being put into subjection, but you don't see it yet. The process is completed, right? Yeah. right? Yeah. And it's that idea. We well, don't like, see everything in subjection to him, but we do see him. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And, and we so see him putting, putting in putting it, like, it yeah. like sanctification in our bodies. The bondage has been broken. But my sin, I still struggle with it, and it need, but I can overcome it now. Right? Right. It's, like, it's canceled sin, and yes. the, world, the, the world is now jurisdictionally changed, right? So it's winnable ground. Yeah, it's leaven working its way through the whole yeah, world. Yeah, amen, yeah. And that kind of reminds me of uh, in Romans 8 where it talks about, you know, creation itself groaning, you know, anticipating the manifestation of the sons of God. And it's interesting, so, and we'll probably get into this in, in a future episode while we go through this whole paradigm shift thing, because I think the manifestation of the sons of God is a really interesting phrase, because when you think about how sons of God is used in the Old Testament, it often refers to celestial beings, right, which were referred as the, the Ben Elohim, the, the sons of God. But here I think it's referring to the human sons of God that were adopted into the family because of what Christ did on the cross. And so what, what this is saying is that creation is sort of waiting for the walking in sonship of God's people, of, of the human beings who have now been redeemed by the blood. And so it's almost like this. So you're saved, right? Um, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, right? If anyone's in, in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so you're a new creation. You no longer have a sin nature. The sin that that indwells you is canceled sin, and it is it is able to be overcome and all that kind of stuff. So too are all of the excessive evils that are plaguing the world. And this is just an interesting thought experiment. I don't know where you guys have, have thought about this, but when you think of like, what else is a result of the curse? Thorns and thistles and tornadoes and hurricanes. And I, I wholeheartedly believe that just as creation responded to the presence of Jesus on the Sea of Galilee when he calmed the wind and the waves, I believe that as the as you know you said, we are all now temples, right? Indwelling the Holy Spirit, where we go is holy ground. And as the knowledge of the glory of God covers the earth as the waters cover the sea, creation's groaning slowly recedes and creation begins to actually live out its God-given purpose, right? And that's I, I get that that's sort of personifying nature in a way that the pagans do, not the Christians. But I do believe thorns and thistles are on their way out. I do believe that tornadoes and hurricanes are on their way out. And what we're actually seeing right now I think the world would ultimately attribute to climate change, right? The sort of groaning of nature is actually a groaning against the high rebellion of our cultures and the degradation of Western civilization. So because what we're after is a post-millennial fullness. So um, I had one person one time say, oh, that, that verse that you love so much, the knowledge of God's glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. He's like, all that really means is that there will be people all over the world who do bow the knee to King Jesus. It doesn't mean the entirety of the nations, but someone from every tongue and tribe and nation. And the analogy that came to me afterwards that I like text him back and was just like, I got a good analogy now, sucker. <laughs> um, but it was... Picture like a drained lake, right? So a lake that gets totally drained. And if you look out at the uneven bottom of the, of the lake floor, there'd be puddles and there'd be wet spots and there'd be dry spots depending on how it was drained, right? So it's like, is that the view of the world that that verse is giving us? That as you look out throughout the train, there is, it's all wet. It's all kind of soggy, a soggy mess. Are we talking about a, a marsh or a mire or versus the lake full of water, right? Overflowing, boats being buoyant in it, the, the whole thing. Well, what is that verse really? The, the knowledge of God's glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, not as the waters cover the marsh dry, you know, wetlands. It's as the waters cover the sea, right? So it's as deep 
as it is wide, it's all wet. It's all drenched. Like how many Christians will there be? How wet is the ocean, right? It's full. Exactly. It's like the reversal of the flood, right? Like the flood, God destroyed the world in his wrath with the flood. He promises he's never going to do that again. But he does say later through Habakkuk that he's going to cover it in his glory. So the world yeah. is going to be flooded. Not with his wrath, but with his glory. But with his glory. Yeah. So like to give you some apologetics on it, like, well, how does God get glory? Through the redemption of sinners, giving up praise. Like, And so to cover the world of glory would be fundamentally would have to be a, a world filled with people who are giving him glory because that's what we're created for, right? Like, And so even that idea of like somebody saying, well, it just means one person from... That literally can't be applied to the text because it doesn't make any sense for yeah. what the text says that yeah. it is. We're not called to disciple people, disciple people from each nation. We're called to disciple the nations, yeah. teach them obedience to all that I've commanded. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. So, all right, we've gone long. Yeah, we've gone long. So let's uh, let's wrap up this episode. We have we have a couple of cool ideas in store. I think we're we're probably going to talk about the divine council and the Ben Elohim. I think though next week we might talk about biblical masculinity. Um, so we'll we'll keep talking about paradigm shifts until we get a better idea. So if you have a better idea, email us. Otherwise, you're going to keep hearing episodes like this. Covenant. <laughs> yeah. All right. See you next week. Peace.